Homestead Church has definitely been part of our journey, and we love you all so dearly. So many of you have been to Panama and have participated in our ministry, have hugged on our boys and girls, our teens in, in schools. You have uh, received those precious tears on your shirts, and you've been able to see the Lord move in miraculous ways in another completely different context. And so for that, we are so blessed, and we are so privileged to have you as part of our journey and to be part of the Homestead story, because um, Jeff and Christy and the Kerr family was were coming down before the Homestead dream really took Flat took on flesh. And so we have been able to see from the inception when Lord, the Lord was stirring them to plant this church to now. Look at us. We're in this beautiful place. You're growing. You're ministering to the community. And it is a beautiful thing to be a part of from afar and now close up. So my name is Tara Kenyon. My husband is Garrett. We have two little boys, Malachi and Titus. Well, Malachi is kind of ginormous now, so I can't really say little boys. Um, and my husband this morning is ministering in Andover up north. He's doing a mission service there. And we're going to be down here sharing our mission story with you all later in the spring. And so this morning, I want to speak to you about something totally different. I was teasing with my husband um, this weekend that, you know, I don't get the microphone all that often. And I got some stuff to say. I got a whole bunch of stuff to say this morning. So I'm going to talk really fast, which, you know, you're Minnesotan, you can handle it. I'm going to talk really fast so I can get it all in, but I just want to share something that the Lord's laid on my heart. And as Christy, you kind of allude, I'm a super, super nerd, and I'm a geek. I love all the geeky stuff about God's word, and I cry at really bizarre revelations. My husband thinks I'm a, a nerd. Um, but, like, it's it's the less obvious things that really stir my spirit because I appreciate these little idiosyncrasies that God has placed. He has sown throughout space and time in all of human history to reveal himself individually and corporately. So this morning, I'm going to say happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. And this morning, we're going to Examine that important chapter 13 because it's Valentine's Day. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. You know, I was telling Lucy this week when she was by our house, like, I cannot do the cliche 1 Corinthians. Like, you guys know what it says, right? Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not... You guys know all that stuff, right? We don't have to spend a whole morning on the cliche day to talk about that love chapter, but I'm just, I've mentioned it now, so box checked. So if you will actually really turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Now Hebrews is one of those books, and I just want to like kind of teach through this chapter this morning. Hebrews is one of those books that stands out among the rest. We don't actually know who wrote Hebrews. Historians do not agree. There is not a consensus about who wrote it. It's pretty almost definitely not Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. The language that's used is very different. It's somebody who knows Paul, who knows Timothy. It's all mentioned in there. But this book stands out as unique from the rest. It's not really a letter, although it's often called the letter to the Hebrews. It's not, um, it's kind of an essay or like a long prose sermon of preaching at a particular people. Can I move this up? Can you make that go up for me? 
And so I want to make sure before we get into chapter 13 that we understand a little bit of the context that is the book of Hebrews. So I call it the book of Hebrews to avoid the confusion of, that's good, can avoid the confusion of letter, it's not a gospel. Um, So there are some projections on who wrote it. It might have been Barnabas, it might have been Clement of Alexandria, it might have been um, Apollos, somebody that was well-educated in Greek. They spoke Greek as a first language, likely, and, you know, the whole New Testament was written in Greek, and the Old Testament had been translated into Greek, and so most people during this time, during the first century Christians, this is the early church that this is all taking place, they all were familiar with the Greek Old Testament, as well as the Hebrew Old Testament. So, this is called Hebrews, so it's written to Hebrews, who were the Jews, and in this case, the Jews who had converted to Christianity. And it's not really a conversion back then because it was kind of an extension, a growth of the faith that they already had. So I want to start with kind of reminding us, like situating us in the book of Hebrews. So I want to talk about Hebrews' greatest hits. These are the things that are going to be, if you've read read through the book of Hebrews, these are the things that you know, like the language that you've heard before, the verses that get put on plaques to hang in your living room kind of thing. So Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give account. We know that one, the double-edged sword. God's word is a double-edged sword. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We've heard that one before, right? These are the greatest hits. Hebrews 6, 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. That's how it starts. Firm and secure. We know that one. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The old King James says the evidence of what we do not see. Hebrews 12.1 and 2. Therefore, this is like an all-time favorite. This is like the greatest hit of Hebrews. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes in Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Again, this is a King James winner, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, these are like little nuances that when you get into the nerdy stuff of God's word, it it just comes alive. Like, what is this, the right hand of God? Like, it means a lot to us now. We understand that the right hand of God, like, whatever. But this, again, was in ancient Rome when this was written, where the right hand of Caesar had all power and authority. And the author says he sits at the right hand of God. He carries that power and authority. And then Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I just pray that you would bless the speaking and the reflection of your word, that it would sink deep into our heart, and that it would transform us the way we behave and the way we think. Thank you for this wonderful tool that you've given us. You've given us everything necessary to be successful in our daily walk with you. We love you. Thank you for considering everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now this work, because it's from this some kind of Greek scholar, somebody who knew what they were talking about, 
he has referenced the Old Testament. He's actually quoted the Old Testament 29 times. So this is one of those books that's a good bridge. Because the Old Testament, especially to like us in modern day, sometimes it's hard to grasp it all. Like, why do we have to talk about the blood and the killing and the sacrifices? And how does that really have any value to me? Well, this is one of those bridge, bridge books that kind of helps, that relates old covenant with new covenant, what Jesus finishes, what he accomplishes and completes in the New Testament and his time here on earth. Now, during this time, there was a huge glob of cultures, so many languages being spoken, so many different cultures and varieties of people that had to interact. They had to trade together. They had to work together. They had to... Um, um, travel together, they had to make decisions together, they had to operate in one congruent society with all these differences. That doesn't sound anything like our life today, right? Completely unrelatable. What? People of different cultures and different languages and we all have to work together. I, this, these are the things, like, this is not some ancient old text that has no application for today. We are living the same kind of life as the early church did. They this, this glob, that's my fancy scholarly word, this glob of people, they had constant clashing. They had this vitriol of their beliefs of, of determining morality and civil religious laws were being made. Civil religious laws were being broken and nobody agreed about anything. <laughs> I'm not reading the news right now, guys. There were refugees, there were exiles, they were, they were slaves, they were rich, they were poor, and so many backgrounds coming together. And when you mix religious backgrounds, that's where things start getting really ugly, right? But we know that this was written to the Jewish Christians because they were facing something a little bit more specific. The author uses almost all of the book to explain Jesus as the enhancement and the fulfillment of the old Jewish law. So it was very important. They were having tons of problems with the Jewish converts kind of like slinking back into the old ways of things because it was comfortable. There was, there was assurance in that. If I do X, Y, Z, then I know that this is what God pleases God. But then Jesus came and changed all of those rules and his own fulfilling of those rules. And so he was encouraging the Jewish brethren not to go back to that old way. And he continuously uses this word better to show the superiority of Christ in the way that he fulfilled things. Now, at the beginning of Hebrews, I wasn't going to read this, but it's like one of those things that's like, it's almost so um, like hyperbole. These first couple verses, the author says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets as many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the extract representation of his be exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs like this is such beautiful poetic colorful language right to be talked about like that like this is jesus he's trying to describe and in this language and then all of a sudden that this bizarre line about his superior to angels and then like the author goes on and on about how he's superior to angels so this is one of those things like if we're just reading the bible only devotionally we're kind of reading that like okay jesus is better than the angels 
No, duh, we get it. Well, we are the benefactors of 2,000 years of Christian thought. And so we don't have to analyze kind of some of this stuff that was happening at the beginning when Jesus had just died and risen again and was the son of God. Like these things were heresy. It seemed like heresy to the, to the ancient Jews. And so here, this guy, but this is again, this is a response to something that was very specific going on. There was a group of Jewish converts who had accepted Christ that the persecution in those times had become so intense that in order to survive, they said, you know what, he, he, really, Jesus, he's not the son of God. He's just like a, a really powerful angel. And they lived in this community called Qumran near the Dead Sea, and they were kind of like a commune. Like, they got cut off from the rest of society. So there were a lot of, like, heresies that were being born because the Jews were receiving such terrible persecution. This was the time when, when the emperors were burning them in the Colosseum and sacrificing them to the lions. The, the, it was intense. They were being jailed. They were being tortured. And so to stand and say, Christ is the son of God, the fulfillment of Mosaic law, was just preposterous. And it was difficult for these believers to stand in that. Imagine it. These are the things that I'm just like, they, they make me a mess. They were so brave, these men and women. They believed the testimony that they heard. They believed the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So this is why we get these bizarre texts. And so as believers, I don't want you to, to, to skim over those. They have value. And again, to today. How many heresies are we battling today in the church globally? There is a lot of them. So let's go back to Hebrews 13 in chapter 1. This is where I'm going to this is where I'm going to prove that I can do a, a love sermon not in 1 Corinthians 13. So, Hebrews 13 was says, "Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters." This is how the author starts the closing wrap-up argument of the entire book. Keep on loving each other. And these, this is just echoing what we've already heard. Jesus himself said they'll know, you, that you, they'll know that you're mine because of your love. It's a big charge for today. They'll know you by your love. And then Jesus, when the, when the Pharisees were trying to, to sneak attack him and catch him in a lie and catch him into not knowing the law, Jesus said the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. And the second is equally like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those were Jesus's words. And then John expounds and says, God loved the world so much he sent his son to die for it. Then John 13, 34, Jesus says again, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're mine. That's kind of the lead up from the, they'll know you by your love. In Romans, God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And in 1 John 4, 12, if you grew up in the church, you know, uh, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Even in the verses you're memorizing now in Philippians 2, it says, be like-minded, having the same love for one another, being of the same spirit and mind. This is this agape love that we hear over and over again. This is the divine, agape love is the divine love, the eternal essence of what love is. All right, let's go on to verse two. I forgot to start my, my timer. Jeff, you got to give me the five minute warning, okay? <sighs> okay, so in, in verse two, it's going to go out. It's going to flow from this. Remember, start 
Keep loving one another. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now this again, because it's the Jewish audience. Who entertained angels without knowing it? Who took care of them? Abraham, right? Lot. Lot was another one. Gideon was another one. The Jewish audience knew, like, this is a real thing. This is a part of our historical history that these men who paved God's way entertained angels. And so we must do the same. And Jesus, he says the very same thing in Matthew 25. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. These like the Persian, the Persians way back before Christ, they kind of started this hospitality. And that part of the world is still known for hospitality, like Turkey. You will be well received in any of these homes because it was kind of a virtue of their culture and society. And that was part of Jewish culture as well. Abraham, Lot, Gideon, these were God's men, his guys that entertained angels. But we're talking about a time when the church and these believers are under horrific persecution. And so to entertain strangers was terrifying. What if it's a spy? What if it's somebody here to kill us? And those are kind of some of the things that come to our mind in today's day and age as well, too. Like, I gotta take in some stranger. What if they murder us in the middle of the night? Well, guess what? Then 100 years that followed this, the church developed, like, training on discernment to how to know whether somebody's ill-intentioned or if it's somebody who needs your Christian care and concern for them. The brotherly love, which is philia, that's another kind of love, this brotherly love, like Philadelphia, if you're supposed to extend that kind of hospitality. So these are things, again... We're just like the early church. This is not an old ancient text that has no application today or just the really quotable parts that we like because they're very flowery. Let us look at verse 3. Continue to remember, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, in this particular instance, the author's talking about the per- those who are being persecuted, the other church. And again, today, right now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are being tortured and killed and murdered for their faith in Christ. And this author's saying, do not forget about them. Today's not your day to be persecuted and to be tortured. Tomorrow may be. So pray for your brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Don't forget about them. In your safety and in your security, do not forget about those who are paying the ultimate price for the cause of Christ. This is how, this is what the author is laying out. This is what the church looks like. This is how we behave. This is what makes us different from other entities. All right, going on. Next verse. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. This is pointing out, among you, among church, among the people of God, marriage should be a sanctity, a a sacrificial activity and covenant that you are entered into. And how many times in God's word do we find Christ and the church being compared to a marriage? That is how big of a deal it is. That is how important it is. And what is it? King James is actually kind of wordy about this like I'm not comfortable saying those words in church 
So I will read the NIV when it comes to this. But what does the end of that verse says? Because who will judge? Wait, who will judge? The sexually immoral? Who will judge them? I guess I can take that off my to-do list. (laughs) Who judges the sexually immoral? Oh, one last thing for me to do today. This is how the people of God live. We demonstrate the beauty of this sanctity of marriage. We demonstrate it. We make it desirable to the world. We've got to do it better than anybody else does it. We've got to make it look like the beautiful thing that God made it to be. That can be scratched in our to-do list. Let's continue on. How else does the church show love? How else do we behave differently than everyone else? Keep your lives free from the love of money. Oh, does this cut a little bit closer? Oh, I'm very sexually moral, (laughs) but I love me some money. Do not keep your lives free of it from the love of money and be content with what you have. Contentment is not a virtue in our culture, especially American culture. Bigger, better, ambition. Go, go, go. Do not love it. Be content with what you have because God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know, and this is again echoing back to the Old Testament. God had said this to Jacob, he had said it to Joshua, and he had said it to Solomon. And again, in the Greek, these are kind of those super geeky thing coming here. The, The Greek uses five negatives in this little passage of I will never leave you or forsake you. We don't have enough negatives in English to express this. This is like a never, not ever, in a million years, ever, ever, never, never kind of situation. Like, not gonna happen. That is how emphatic this verse was. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you so we say with confidence the Lord is my helper this is um, echoing the Psalms I will not be afraid what can mere mortals do to me how superhero does that sound what can mere mortals do to me the Lord is my helper and my strength and again Jesus he and Matthew and and Luke both said this consider how the they, they quoted Jesus in this consider how the wildflowers grow they don't labor or spin Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all this splendor was never dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Do not worry about what you drink. Do not worry about what you eat. He's got it. That is where the contentment comes from, to know that you are cared for, you are loved, you are provided for. And God will do those things in supernatural ways. He will use his people to meet those needs. He will use his resources to meet those needs and to help one another. That is what being part of the body of Christ looks like. Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. Let's keep going. Let's, let's get, I like to get a whole chunk of scripture. Like, how does this all fit together rather than picking out just the parts that I really like? And we're coming up to some hard stuff. So, so bear with me. Follow with me. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. No pressure for the leaders, right? But it tells us, You need to remember them. Remember who spoke these words of truth over to you 
And then we see that famous verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can be counted on. And it's going to be demonstrated in the lives of those who lead you. So now is like, the this is the nitty gritty. This is the part that, like when you read Hebrews and you read these couple of verses coming up, I read them and I'm like, huh? I don't really know how that admonishes my soul today. So I want to give you a little bit of insight. And this is like the, this is the, the trickiest part of this passage. So I'm going to read it in a little clump here. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. We already talked a little bit about that, right? What kind of strange teachings? It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have any enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now this is one of those, that's, that's what? Huh? What does that mean? I don't know. No, I do know. Only because I studied. Not just because I was like, oh, that's what that means. Because you've got to dig in. When you find this stuff that's like, huh? That doesn't make sense. You've got to dig in a little bit. Now, again, remember, these were Jews. They were used to burning sacrifices in synagogues and temples. They were, this was part of their normal language. So we have to relate back to them a little bit. They were constantly battling this, these false doctrines. Again, <laughs> We see a lot of that. The writer tells him, don't be tricked or carry away by this. And then he addresses this common trap. A lot of these Jews who had converted to Christianity, accepting Christ as the fulfillment of the law, were like, yeah, but maybe if we do both at the same time, we kind of get double coverage, right? I, again, I, I've done all of these things before. So the simplest way to understand what's happening here with the, all the blood offerings and the burning and the priests and whatnot is that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. This was incredibly shameful. We already know that the way Jesus died was horrific. But again, the fact that it was outside the city gates made it that much. That's where the, the liars and the evil people who didn't belong to anybody, that was their domain. And that's where they chose to, to murder Jesus, to crucify him. And so this passage is saying... We go with him. We go with him in his suffering, and we go out where the murderers and the liars and the haters are, and that is where we extend the grace that was extended to us by his sacrifice. So that altar, he says, we have an altar. He's talking about the cross. The cross is our altar, and now Jesus is the high priest who brings the, the grace and the forgiveness that we need. He has fulfilled that. that um, so this identifying with Jesus, it means that we bear his reproach, and that's what a lot of people are not willing to do. So, and again, it's also kind of a little bit symbolic that outside the camp is like outside of the traditional Judaism that they had experienced all of their lives. And again, like for us, we don't really have a good comparison to this, this dynamic because the Jews were participating in traditions that had been handed down to them for thousands of years. They heard the same stories over and over and over again from the time they were little, and they were the next generation fulfilling God's law. And so to ask them to not do that anymore is just, oh, it feels so harsh. 
Like, how can you ask them not to do these things that made them people of the covenant of God? So I don't want us to take this lightly because we are kind of like, I don't even, I didn't know my great grandparents. Like, I don't know what they did or what they believed or how they lived. That was not true in these cultures that had been handed down to them through generations upon generations upon generations. So they were raised to know that everything outside the camp, anything outside of traditional Judaism, evil, unclean, and wicked. Then the author says that we don't actually even have a city to look forward to here. We don't have anything enduring here. We have something else to look forward to. And this is, again, echoing what Jesus says, that our citizenship is in heaven, in my Father's house, in the kingdom of God. He was preparing his people to say, like, it ain't going to be Jerusalem here like we know it. We're not going to rule this world. We are of another place. So that look at how much value that has. It's hard, right? Like, that is not like, oh, that's what that means. I'm so spiritual today. Look at how much I've grown. But when you dig in, you see, you share with the suffering of the people of God who made those early decisions. And we stand on their shoulders as benefactors because they did that hard work. They laid down their lives so that we could sit here today worshiping the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, let's, as we, as we look at the end of this chapter now, coming, we're coming into the good stuff again. In verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise. What a word to use, right? A sacrifice of praise. Sacrifices are things that are hard. That means in every situation, we're not going to feel the praise. It's going to be a sacrifice. But what had the author told us earlier? Be content. You're provided for. God is with you, and he's never going to leave you. So bring the sacrifice of praise. Let the fruit of your lips openly profess his name. And again, whenever the Bible talks about fruit, it's like, what does the inside of you bear? Let me tell you, the inside of Tara does not always bear fruit. (laughs) We were talking about that last night, huh, Steve? Does not always bear fruit. These are constant struggles, but we're admonished by thousands of years of generations of believers who have gone before us, and they've shared in these same struggles. Verse 16 says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, here's that word again, God is pleased. Sometimes when we're doing good and we are sharing with others, it is a sacrifice. But God is pleased with these kinds of sacrifices. Now, verse 17, it made the list. It made the top 10 things that this author thought these, this group of believers needed to remember. Have confidence in your leaders. Right, guys? You can take me out for a nice dinner later. <laughs> Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Those who must give an account. In this verse, there is a message to leaders and a message to those who are led. This is, a lot of people use this to be spiritually abusive, this kind of verse. Submit to my spiritual authority. But what does the author say? 
they must give an account of how they lead. Do this. This is God's word right here. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Don't be a burden. Be a joy. You benefit from being a joy to your leaders. I hope I'm a joy to my leaders. My leaders, my authority on the mission field, I love them. And I feel like they lead me well. They've got a good account to give for how they've led. I hope I bring them joy and not distraction, not burden. We want to be people who are good leaders and also good followers. Both, all of us play both roles at some point, right? And then this beloved brother, we know it's a man who wrote, because let's face it, women didn't get to write back then. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I might be restored to you soon. This is a sincere and beautiful prayer for any kind of leader. Pray for me. I want to have a clear conscience, and I want to lead well. And you know what? I love you, and I want to be with you again. So pray that we're reunited soon. We have to communicate via these beautiful, eloquent letters. But I want to be with you. I want to see your face. I want to hug your neck. We can relate to that right now, too, huh? No hugging. I don't want to see any hugging in this church today. Elbow bumps. Well, maybe I've hugged a few people today. I want to be a good leader. I want to have a clear conscience. So pray for me. This is your month of prayer where you focus. And those first couple days, you were praying for your pastors and for your leadership. Because guess what? This is said, do not be a burden to your leaders because people are burdens to their leaders. This is not said in vain. This is said with purpose. Be a blessing. Pray for the people who lead you, who have to give an account for their leading of you. Pray that they can lead you with a clear conscience, with a clear mind, and with all sincerity and intention and discernment of the word of God. We want to be good leaders. This morning as we wrap up, we come to one of the most beautiful benedictions. Again, this author knew how to write. Like, these are the kind, this is like the Mozart of writing. Like, this is beautifully strung together word and lyric, and especially to explain difficult things. We can be transformed by the word of God. This is how we grow. I want to encourage you to be a little bit nerdy in your discovery of God's word because it sinks deeper in your heart when you kind of understand some of the background. I remember I was reading a missiology book, and, the, and Andrew Walls is the author. He was a missiologist from the 40s. And he was talking about the Council of Jerusalem, and it kind of ties in exactly to this same um, covenant um, sacrificial ceremonial behaviors. Because Paul was the guy that advocated for the Gentiles to be included in the fold, Right? And this was very hard for those early Christians because, again, even as the Jews accepted Christ as the Messiah, it was for the Jews. They are the people of God. They are the people of the covenant. And so the Council of Jerusalem, you find this in like Acts 15, that's Paul and Barnabas come to all of the believers 
because they're going to say, it's time to include the Gentiles among us. And in order to do so, we can't actually ask that they be circumcised because that's part of the old covenant. Now consider for a minute that argument. Again, this is something when we read Acts 15, we kind of glaze over Like, of course you're not going to make these people be circumcised as adults. Come on. Like, this, Jesus was all about grace, right? But this was a preposterous idea for the early Jews. This physical sign was the sign of their covenant with God. And now we're asking them, you know what? It, Jesus fulfilled even that. But this was something that those brethren, so I, when I read how this missiologist put it, I just sat and cried. I am too religious, and I am too set in my ways to be accepting of anything beside what I think is correct and true. And here, these men and women of God were taking on thousands of years of covenant and saying, oh, the whole purpose of this covenant was so that they could be included among us. Oh, how brave they were. How, what men and women of the spirit they were to hear the prompting and the direction of the spirit to say, yeah, that's it. You're getting it. You've really got it. I am the fulfillment of all of that covenant. I am the fulfillment of all of the laws and all of the ceremonies. It is all finished in me, the person of Christ. And again today, we stand on 2,000 years of suffering and of sacrifice and of thought and of agreement and disagreement and hearing from the, the Spirit and discerning His leading and being people of a new covenant because of these brave men and women that went before us. What a beautiful thing. And you know what? We, have, we could hang out and chill with the early church and we would get along great. We would have a ton to talk about because we would say, what do we do now? You would not believe what's happening in our society. And they'd be like, you think that's bad? At least they're not burning you down at Viking Stadium. <laughs> These men and women gave everything. And you know, I believe when they were praying for the persecuted, when they were praying for those who would face opposition, they were praying for us. They were praying for us. We are their legacy, their hope, and the destiny of what they knew God was doing on this planet. Let us carry that legacy well. Let us be people of God's spirit who know how to discern his word and let it bring life to those around us. Because who's the judge? Just take it off your to-do list. Be the example that the author of Hebrews encourages you and admonishes you to be. I just want to pray this benediction over you this morning. If you will close your eyes and put your hand over your heart and with all love and concern and sincerity I want to speak this over you. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with every good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever amen Lord we just offer ourselves this morning as a living sacrifice for you 
May we be people of your word. May we understand and seek to study and, under, and know all of the beautiful little tiny things that you have completed through your people over the years. May we understand why each and every word of this text is important and applicable to our lives. May we grow leaps and bounds, and may we be a blessing to those around us. Let us be people, the people of God, people of your spirit who bring healing and life and truth to our communities, to our families, to everyone that we meet. Be with us today. You've said you'll never leave us or forsake us. Let us be so acutely aware of your presence with us as we leave this place today. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.